Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. The Pope and Young Club wants to welcome you as we rally together to ensure our bow hunting opportunities for today and tomorrow. You've come to the podcast that believes in preserving, protecting, and promoting the passion for bow hunting. Join us as we strive to be the voice of today's bow hunter. This is the Pope and Young Podcast. All right, everybody. Welcome to the Pope and Young Podcast. It's been a bit. I am Dylan, joined as always by my co-host, Tim Rzewski. Um, We had to take a... Um, kind of a pause break, which kind of sucked because it was like, Hey, we're back up and running got a new co-host, Tim. Uh, and then Tim had some problems. So, uh, Tim, you want to share Medical anything? Leave. I mean, yeah, you, I went uh, on. it wasn't, uh, you know, maternity leave or anything exciting like that, that maybe you all out there get to do, but, uh, no medical leave. I uh, got out of my truck and broke my ankle again. again. Um, and, and my leg, I, I've broken a lot of bones and, I was in a card tournament three months ago and some guy was trying to up the other guy, you know, breaking this and breaking that. I said, you know, the only bone I have my bone I haven't broken is a, it's a leg bone. I should have never said that. <laughs> you know, Tim, you keep making fun of me for being bald. And I just, I, you know, I, te- I said, hey, as soon as you text me that, I said, dude, that's when you know you're getting old, when you just start breaking bones, <laughs> getting out of the vehicle. And yeah, uh, yeah, no doubt, no doubt. So I'm not that old yet. I'm not. I'm not breaking bones, just getting out of the truck yet. But um, we're joined by Kurt Wells with a C. Kurt Wells with a C. Everybody, um, Kurt. If it makes you feel any better, my uh, my wife's name is spelled with a K, and my phone huh. always auto corrects it to C, and I never change it. So I just your wife's name is Kurt. No, it's <laughs> your wife's name is Kurt. K. But every time my phone autocorrects it to CH and I never change it. So people will text me back and be like, I thought her name was with a K. And I'm like, it is. I'm just too lazy to change it. Um, <laughs> so it's not, 
so no hard feelings. I uh, just uh, sometimes just spell whatever comes up, and that's what that's what happens. So no problem. Kurt, give us an introduction to yourself, man. Not that you need much of one in the bow hunting world, but for those listening, uh, give us an introduction to yourself, man. Oh, well, I'm currently the editor of Bow Hunter Magazine in my 14th year, and uh, host of Bow Hunter TV. And we're in the process of our filming our 20th year on uh, TV, Outdoor Channel, and Sportsman Channel. Wow. Cool. 20 years. 20 years? Yeah. 20 it just years, seems, yeah. I mean, look at all the things in our lives that go by in 20 years. Dylan doesn't understand, but oh my gosh, that just seems like it was the other day. <laughs> yeah. 20 years ago, Tim, I was 10 years old, so. <laughs> when you had hair, yeah. Yeah, when I had hair. <laughs> being hurtful again kurt um you. so you've been in the industry a long time uh you've had quite a bit of history with pope and young uh as as we were just talking about beforehand so what's been in your involvement with pope and young over the years oh i believe i joined in 93 and uh started going to conventions and it sort of became a uh uh just something that you do, you know, once you start going, you want to keep going every couple of years. And, and, uh, then once I got involved with Bowhunter magazine, then we were always there as representatives of the magazine and we've supported Pope and young and the record book and the system and the projects of Pope and young ever since, uh, I can remember. And Pope and, young, uh, of course, MR James was the founder of uh bow hunter magazine he was uh, had a huge presence with pope and young for many many years so it's just kind of been a natural collaboration yeah now what have you uh so a couple years ago um we released kind of the new um the new vision the new brand of pope and young the new direction of pope and young not that we were forgetting our past but just kind of repositioning so that people can see you know, this is what Pope and Young does. This is what we stand for. Uh, you were there kind of in the in the press media day that we, you know, kind of went over all of that. Um, what were your thoughts towards that? I mean, did you think uh, this is good for Pope and Young? Did you think, you know, maybe these are things that Pope and Young should consider? Um, being somebody that's been in the industry for so long, had so much history with Pope and Young, uh, what was kind of your thoughts behind that whole, the whole rebrand and, and revisioning of Pope and Young? Well, it uh, you know, life comes with change, and it ha seems to happen faster and faster every year. So, I mean, the club had to respond, and I can remember guys saying that it was a sea of blue hair when you went to the uh, conventions because there were so many older guys, and uh, and now uh, there's been sort of a move to younger people now we have quite a few younger uh members and active members who are coming to the conventions and everybody's having a great time and it seems to be making a little bit of a move and um modernizing i guess you could say and of course with a lot of older bow hunters like myself uh, the history is important but you also have to um you know adapt to change so i thought it was good to uh get that focus laid out and logo and all that kind of thing i, I mean you got to do that in this day and age or you're going to get left behind that's all there is to it yeah 
for sure. Now, what do you, um, and, and Tim kind of had some, some interesting questions about this, you know, very topic, um, before we started recording. So what do you think it, it's going to take, you know, for that younger generation to really understand and buy into the conservation efforts that Pope and Young's putting forward? Well, that's tough. Um, you know, even state organizations, a lot of them are only running seven, eight percent membership in uh, like the North Dakota bow hunters and Minnesota bow hunters and some of those that I'm somewhat familiar with. And and it just seems like it gets harder and harder to get people to join organizations these days. And um and part of that is because everything is going pretty well, you know. I mean, there's lots of deer, there's lots of bow hunters out there, and they're all having um, pretty good seasons, and nobody's threatening them or threatening their existence uh, uh, as far as the anti-hunting movement. You don't see so much of that anymore. So it's hard to motivate them to... Uh, give back basically and that's the way i look at it is uh, you think about the time you spend in a tree stand or belly crawling on a mule deer or, or calling in a bull elk and those exciting moments in your life that uh, you'll remember forever uh, are there for a reason and you need to show appreciation for that and at least give back in some way and uh, whether that's mentoring a young archer and helping them become a bow hunter or or uh, joining Pope and Young or state organization, just to do something. You should do something to give back instead of just take, take, take all the time. And uh, it seems like uh, the younger generation doesn't quite grasp that concept until they get a little bit older. Yeah. Do you think it's a gener do you think it's a generational thing? Um out, out in the West we have a little different situation, at least in Oregon. Our deer populations are not great. We're not drawing tags, we're not having a lot of success. Yeah, I'm sure, you know, 10% of the bow hunters still kill 90% of the animals. That theory does apply. But when when we see the struggles that we're having with deer numbers out here and the frustration with tags and predators and reintroduction of species and and various things. Out here, I'm still not seeing a significant increase in interest and dedication and giving back to your local state organizations here, like whether it's Oregon Bow Hunters or Oregon Hunters Association, or even your national organizations like Mule Deer Foundation or Rocky Mountain Elk. We, we recruit, we get a few new younger guys because the older generation wants to to transition. But do you also think, and I maybe it's just me, I got involved young, but then I had a period where I went and had, you know, marriage and kids and and I kind of took a break for a while and, and came back, that maybe timing in your life is is um a big role. And with that, is our fear then that this younger generation, when they are in their 40s and 50s and 60s, if we don't do our job now and expose them and get them um, familiar, that we won't have them to carry it on. I just see the same thing happening out here. And we have issues. We don't have deer running everywhere like we want to. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, I was in Wisconsin earlier this month and uh, or not, late October and saw very few deer. And, and uh, I saw hardly any does. And I had three doe tags in my pocket that I was given at no charge by the Wisconsin DNR. And you're starting to see this across a lot of states, too, where uh, these game and fish departments are are trying to kill so many does that the deer populations are starting Lovely. to feel the effects of it. And uh, these guys go out and they struggle to get a deer. And then they scroll through social media and they see all these monsters getting killed by these other guys that have... Uh, private land or managed properties and that kind of thing. And it creates some frustration. So, um, you know, all it, ta- it doesn't take too much to get a guy to just give up on bow hunting. And, um, and if, if he doesn't have an opportunity or if somebody isn't looking after him, then it gets pretty difficult to hold him. And especially as they get younger guys, as they get older, um, they sort of take for granted their hunting opportunities when they're young, but as they get older, they go, they go through the whole life cycle, like you're talking and have a family and pretty soon the opportunity to get back out in a tree or get back out stalking a mule deer or something becomes much more valuable to them. And, uh, they're willing to spend money to do it, but, but getting them to, uh, join a club i mean and and of course the other thing with pope and young is it's still a a matter of fact that people look at pope and young as just a record-keeping organization and they still don't know um all the other projects and all the other things that pope and young does and it's the only organization in the country that represents uh bow hunters on a national scale so uh but they still don't know what else is being done with conservation programs and that kind of thing they just look at it as scoring and then you have the contentious uh arguments over scores and those kind of things too so um there's a hill to climb no doubt sure with this when we keep saying like a cliche the younger generation i mean i remember when i was the future you know they told us in school you are the future this younger generation let's say it's dylan's age and younger um and we put that onus on them but they also live in a different era you know remember when our parents walked uphill both ways to school they're in what we call that instant gratification era where everything the answer's come instantaneously and then in oregon we have a youth program for example i keep bringing up oregon where you can have early opportunities at some nice tags and guarantee you some tags early on as a youth to keep your interest but then they have to get in line wait five to twenty some years to get a good deer elk or pronghorn tag and they lose that connection because it's not getting it instantaneous now that's my fear my fear is that sort of expectation from the world isn't going to fit in with hey when you come back around in life and hunting's going to be a value again um or more of a value will we have lost them and what can pope and young what can 
Bowhunter TV do to keep them um, involved, keep them interested, engaged, so that later down the road, when the internal calling maybe happens, that they do get involved in an organization or or join the club. Um, I think we all every organization, like you said, struggles with this. But for Pope and Young, we still are running this. We're running to this big hurdle of expressing and educating that it's more than record book. And of course, I'm on the record side, but this is one of Dylan's jobs and 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 hence interviewing important and smart people like yourself to say, give us ideas. And and with the people that follow you, what do you say? And I think it's important that you do. You you recognized that that generation, um, um, maybe they're not. I, I see way more young people involved in bow hunting than I ever did, but I also don't see their involvement in um, pr- promoting and protecting it. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's probably not much different than it was back in the seventies. You know, the young bow hunters were weren't so interested in that kind of thing. You know, they were just learning, wanted to want to uh, become a better bow hunter and get on more trips and hunt more animals and become more successful. And they weren't thinking about the future. I mean, no young kid thinks about the future hardly at all. You know, they're just thinking about now. And uh, of course the old cell phone makes it even worse. I mean, you're lucky to even get a kid's nose out of a cell phone just to get him right, out shoot right. a bow. And, uh, I mean, the, the knowledge of mankind is in that little phone. So anything and everything they want to see or read is there. And uh, and it's instant, like you said. I mean, you can search anything. And um, to have to work at something and uh, be able to learn how to shoot a bow and practice and tuning your bow and all that other kind of thing, I mean, that's definitely not instant gratification so and i think that's a huge value that i do see so many at least out here i do see a large number of that 25 to 30 year old range of of guys and ladies and a lot of ladies that have picked up a bow and they've been doing it for a while they do know the dedication to it sure they they're going to push their limits they're going to push technology they're going to I don't know. I won't say cut corners, but but what's good about it is they are practicing, they are tuning, and maybe that will just be um, a great gift in the future. That the value of that, with a little bit of brand awareness about you know Pope and Young along the way, will will keep us in the back of their mind when they do um, find that moment in their life where they want to give back. Yeah, and there's there's a lot of young guys out there now that are extremely knowledgeable. Oh, and yeah. serious about their bow hunting. And I mean, when it comes to tuning and arrow building and all that kind of thing, these guys know exactly what they're doing and they study it and they super tune their bows. I mean, when we were young, we had no idea what our arrow even weighed. I mean, now well, I know I- what my arrow weighs and what percent FOC it is and my feet per second. We had no clue on any of that stuff. I can't even imagine what my old 2219 with five inch veins and a 175 grains wiki weighed. That thing was a beast. But 
and now so there, there is that element of guys out there now that uh, have an archery shop in their basement they don't take it to another archery shop they're doing it themselves and uh, and i've been doing that for years but the average guys aren't, aren't normally doing that so there is a young powerful group coming up but again until they feel threatened you know it's like uh the Biden administration trying to take away guns and different things like that, that causes people to go out and buy guns and join the NRA and all that, all those other organizations because somebody's after them. Right now, right. nobody's really after us, but uh, someday they well, will that, be. That leads to my obvious question next. What, in your opinion, what what is threatening bow hunting, if anything, to you? I think the number one threat to hunting as a whole is access to property. Um, having a place to go. And, you know, in the West, it's not a problem. You always got some public land you can go to. And, yeah, you're going to be competing with everybody else. But if you live, uh, you know, east of the Dakotas, and finding a place to hunt is really tough. And if you can't buy land, or lease land, um, you're gonna you're just gonna go buy golf clubs and take your kids golfing. So I think that's a Fair problem. Enough. And there's some state organizations, uh, or state management organizations that have lots of different access programs that do work and they do help. But um, access is one thing, um, and uh, they're you know. I don't know if there's any bow hunting specific threats. Uh, you know, most states have bow hunting seasons. Uh, some are getting shortened and and you may have. Uh, but see, then you have the other problem. Is the game and fish departments seem to think that they got to kill all the does. So they don't care what weapon you use or what season you put it in. Just kill deer. They don't care. And the problem is nobody has a good way to count deer. And uh, you can't do it. I mean, if you could enlist the military, you could do it with thermal imaging and count every deer. And you'd have a great system. But game and fish departments cannot afford that kind of technology. So it always seems like it's two to three years too far into the harvest before they realize that they shot too many does. And then it's like, Oh no, we shot too many does and now we're in trouble. And, and so, yeah, I, I've, I've had that discussion with a couple state agency employees over the last two years when we're doing measuring workshops. Um, we've done workshops with Georgia, Missouri, Kentucky, and I had a great conversation with the gentleman that is in charge of the entire um, Kentucky, what I call fishing game department. He's now an official measure. And it was very enlightening for me because I still look at the world as everybody's like the West. We don't have enough deer. It's hard to draw tags. Um, you know, in my state, I feel like it's managed for opportunity rather than quality. And when the agency is primarily paid, by um, tagging license sales for fish and game that sell more tags, have more money if we 
do the right thing in the unit, we'll have to get rid of a full-time employee there. T- they can't manage it anyway. And I, so it goes back and forth. Wh- where do you find your funding? But for them, my big argument was, my discussion, my topic of at hand was, uh, what about crossbows and bow hunting seasons? They're not bows and, and why? And he said, Tim, I get your, your Western plight. I get it. Out here, we have too many deer. We want you to harvest as many deer as you can. And so we try to increase opportunity that way by allowing other weapons. But he did see through our four days of training and the workshop and discussion about the history and, and the things that we struggle with at Pope and Young, he did see where the argument could be made and, and the frustration for public being educated unintentionally to believe that a crossbow is the same thing as as hand-drawn archery. And uh, but it was the first time I really heard it in such a way that I went, too many deer. I I get it. I get it. I wish we had that problem out here. Yeah. Yeah. And the draw thing, that's a tough nut to crack there too, you know. I mean I applied for Arizona elk with my two sons. It took us 12 years to get a tag, and we had a great hunt and everything, and we started back over again. But in some states, like Colorado, where you have actual preference, true preference, um, an 18-year-old kid coming out of school is not even going to yep. bother to apply for some nope. of those premium units because it's yeah. 25 to 26 points. You yeah. know you're not going to draw for 26 years plus point creep, but yeah. how how do you go back? It's like you know, we were talking about the scoring system. You can't go back, and so all the people that have been building points, you know, there's no way you could change that and without hurting them. But so yeah, yeah somebody's going to be on the losing end. Yeah, somebody's going to be on the losing end of changing. Um, point-based application systems. God bless Idaho and New Mexico, who never adopted one, although now Friday, December 1st, we're all going to jump online and try to get our over-the-counter non-resident Idaho tags and be mad at the system for the next year. But you look at you look at Wyoming moose. I remember when I finally started applying for points 12 years ago. I mean, I did the I thought it was pretty simple math, let alone. There's, there are tags that require maximum points, 29, 27, whatever it is, points in Oregon to draw one of 20 tags. I mean, the point creep is so large that no kid starting today, even if he rolls what we have out here called mentor points, even if he rolls those points, we do have a 25% pool. We, we do have an interesting thing that if people with zero or fewer points than max apply once it gets to the 75% of the tag allotment. It's just given out in random order of a random draw. But the number of people that draw one of those four Winnaha bull tags, um, seldom are they people with very little points. To to draw Wyoming moose as a non-resident, if you don't already have 20 points, you're never going to draw it. It's never going to happen. So you're just giving them money, and that should be caught up. That system should be caught. That Something should be done there. I mean, maybe it needs yeah. to be a once-in-a-lifetime. I don't know. But uh, that's the one good thing about once-in-a-lifetime style hunts, at least I see, that it gets rid of Point Creek because it gets rid of the successful applicants. And in some states like ours, Bighorn Sheep and Mountain Goat, there are no points. 
you may never draw, but you only draw it once. Um, kind of like hunting Arizona elk, like you just said. Maybe you draw it once in your life and you treat it like an oil tag. Like this will be our only time hunting it. And it's funny yeah. how so many of my friends here in the West, in Oregon, Washington, Idaho, Northern California, we meet people that that have property or hunt a lot out out east, and we're like, oh, we want to come high whitetail now because you have something to hunt. Um, you know, it's it's an interesting, different world. Pri massive private property and small lots versus public land mixed with big private property lots, and uh, and just the different management of game. Um, yeah, I, moving yeah, on I'm to another like twenty topic. different drawings, and uh, I've only drawn one uh, tag, Wyoming elk. And uh, some of them I've got 12, 13 points here and there, 17 points. I think I got 18 points for Arizona sheep, but that and eight bucks will get me a Starbucks coffee. You know, it's uh, not going to do me much good. But I keep trying. But of course, when a lot of the states went to using credit cards, that changed the odds too, because it used to be you had to write the check. Yep. And, uh, yep. That kept it to the people who really, really wanted to apply. And as soon as they allowed credit cards in, it kind of blew up there. But I can understand. I think we always wanted to apply. That. Yeah. I think some of us always wanted to apply, but you have a budget. And when you're younger or you've got family or, or whatever your life situation is, right now, I mean, I think in all my Western applications, I'm allocating out well over six, $7,000 a year to apply for deer, elk, and antelope. You know, in a few states, if I do apply for bison or moose or, or sheep or something, it's usually not in the states that I got to cough up that two, three, four thousand dollars $4,000 to get back in a couple months just because of a budget. So yeah, that that's definitely hit. Um, and and kind of with that, with some of those big high dollar cost non-resident tags and thinking of North American big game in general and all of your experience, not only in your hunting experience personally, but also with, with the TV show, what's your thought on um, someone's ability today, a, a young hunter today who hears about the 29 North American big game animals that are recognized by Boone and Crockett and Pope and Young. Yeah, we have velvet. We have non-typical categories. But those 29 species, one of which you can't even hunt right now and maybe never again, is is that an interest anymore um, to the younger generation? What what do you think? No, I don't think too much because, uh, you know, it used to be people would say, well, it'd take you about a half a million dollars to get uh, the super slam. Now it'll take you that just to get the sheep slam, <laughs> yeah. you know. Yeah. And the, the yeah. cost of these hunts has just skyrocketed. I mean, I saw one stone sheep hunt that was 35000 and if you killed a ram, it was another seventy. was the trophy fee. So it'd be one hundred and five thousand bucks, and I mean, my two sons, when they, I mean, I've been just blessed to be able to go on lots of different, you know, brown bear hunts, goat hunts, and uh, moose hunts in the Yukon, that kind of thing. And when they ask me how much that hunt costs, 
they just cannot believe it. You know, they, they can't believe anybody would spend that much money on a hunt. And uh, then you got Jimmy John going out and spending 500000 for an Antelope Island mule deer tag. And I mean, it's just beyond comprehension for anybody that, uh, unless they're from money, you're not doing it. That's right. Just, you know, and and I, you even got to have the motivation, even if they have the money. Are you going to spend forty thousand on a uh, reservation elk hunt in Arizona? Or you know, it's it's uh, it's getting tougher. It is. You know that whole funny comment I said where I said I've never broken my leg bone before, and then I go and do it. My new favorite thing to tell everybody because I really do believe in in positive karma and uh, paying it forward is I've never won the lottery either. So maybe <laughs> if I win the lottery. You know, one of those $700 million jackpots, maybe people will be really disgusted with me and go, oh, you bought a $200,000 house, you spent the rest on honey trips. Yeah. And I'd be, yeah, that'd be fun. But, you know, I have a gentleman friend here in, in uh, Oregon that I measure for, and, and he didn't start bow hunting until he was 58, and he had a goal. He wants to go get them all, and he may not hit it. I don't know. Um, he's, he's over halfway, but... With some sort of massive intelligence, he did the math and he said, I went after the hardest to hunt animals first and got those. He goes, but in hindsight, he goes, they're probably the most expensive ones too. And and so, uh, yeah, we run into issues, not just for bow hunters, but for hunters in North America that uh, the Quebec Labrador caribou is unhuntable right now. Um, the financial um, burden or expense to go after some animals for non-residents. I, I keep saying non-residents because, you know, most of us are non-residents to most every place in North America. Um, yeah, I've got some good friends that that hunt mountain goat, caribou, and moose every year in Alaska, and I'm so envious. I want to buy a motorhome and just drive up there, become a resident for a couple of years. But well, for Shiris everybody moose, else, the cost. Cyrus moose is another issue because of where the border is on the U.S. border. Uh, you have to draw a Cyrus tag in order to to get a moose hunt, unless you're willing to pay big money for a landowner tag. Um, uh, and then, of course, in southern Canada, those outfitters up there call the moose along there Shires moose, south of the Trans-Canada Highway. They call them Shires moose. But Pope and Young and Boone and Crockett do not. So, right. Um, right. So if you're trying to get the super slam, you're going to have a hard time with the Shiris moose too, because trying to draw one, and you see these odds on these drawings, <laughs> they say 0.01%. Well, that's only because they only go two digits. It's so less you're than saying that. I have a chance. I have a chance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and and I let me just go out there and, and say this, just so nobody misunderstands um, my Polish um, words here and that is that i am not at all upset with people spending money on hunts i i am envious i would love to be able to do that as well and and i do know so many that also give back to hunting as well as the outfitters there are many outfitters that pope and young and boona crockett work with in our programs that that um have some very expensive hunts that do work with us and that is that is great giving back to conservation um I've had people ask me why in the world would anybody spend seventy 
thousand dollars on a bighorn sheep tag in Oregon. I said, because the money goes back to the sheep program and and uh <clears throat> that's valuable. I see the value there. And oh yeah. And, yeah, and our I mean, sheep program especially if you got the money, I can't think of anything better to spend it on. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> you know, I mean, if that's your goal and you've worked hard all your life and and you got some money to spend, you can't take it with you. So um, getting out there and and uh, doing those adventures is way more beneficial than sitting around counting your 401k plan, seeing how much money you got. <laughs> Sure. You know, I often wonder too, or at least I, I don't know that I think about it as much anymore, but is it the influence of the internet and Kurt Wells on his TV show and, and all of you that wrote all these articles all these years that it seems like whitetail hunters are getting way more dedicated to like the, the finest of details in, in whitetail hunting on their leased or own private property? Or is it because other things the hunter just getting more expensive were these guys all western hunters and now they're kind of cutting it back or is it that i'm just becoming more aware of all these different whitetail bow hunters and and the internet's making it easier for me to find yeah i think it's probably a combination of both uh, used to be everybody went out west at least for an elk hunt or an animal punt or something and and uh, but now it seems like some guys are just dedicating themselves strictly to whitetails, and and um, uh, I, I think that's part of it. But it's also, I mean, you scroll through scroll through your social media feed, and and you're just inundated by these monster bucks that make you ask, what planet are these people even hunting on? I mean, oh my uh, gosh! And every buck is a one ninety. I don't know how that happens. And you look at the picture and you squint, squint to get one seventy out of it. And and uh, and I've been hunting whitetails for forty three years, and I can tell you that I've been on some good private property, and on public land, on all kinds of property in twenty five states. And I've never laid eyes on a 190 whitetail in the field while I'm hunting. Not yeah, one. Ever. Yeah. I I I sit there and look at all the whitetails I look at daily in my job, let alone all the animals that I've measured. And I don't measure hundreds of whitetails out here in, in Oregon from the Northwest, but we do see them at panels. And I am telling you, when somebody says they killed a 140 buck, that's a real nice whitetail in my opinion that's to me that's like a great great goal for me that it would be to hit like 140 i think earlier we were talking about how it's funny and i'm and i always sound like i'm throwing people under the bus but i i get calls all the time about well my outfitter said or my my buddy said or my taxidermist said and and we do have outfitters who are official measures who cannot measure their their clients' trophies. That is a rule. And we have taxidermists who are measures. But I think there's some education that can go on that might help people to better understand the official scoring system um, and, and all the arguments that that those that haven't been trained that go with that, you know, the whole abnormal points or difference or nets versus gross and, and all that. Um, you said something, though, earlier that 
I'm going to use from now on um, about how the Mel Johnson buck is so great as a representative for Pope and Young. And, and maybe you could t say that again, because um, I'm going to use it. I got to hear it again. Well, uh, I think the Mel Johnson buck validates the scoring system, the typical scoring system, because uh, it's been, what, 65 years, at least somewhere in there. And since Mel killed that buck, and there's, what, 3 million bow hunters in the country, and in 60-some years, no one has killed, an elk, uh, killed a white-tailed buck with the same combination of symmetry, mass, width, and length as Mel Johnson's buck. And to me, that, that validates the scoring system. There's been some monsters, and there's been some controversy with some common base on the Zaft buck and now a big one just got killed in Ohio last week. That's probably going to have a disappointed hunter because I think that's going to be a common base. But nobody has killed a buck so perfectly formed and so big as the Mel Johnson buck in all those years. And there's so many trying to do it. And uh, and and I think that that validates the system to me. I mean, if it was getting broken every three years, four years, then you'd have to kind of wonder about it. But, uh, and, and then, you know, on that same vein of what you were talking about, one of the things that really irritates me is I'll go into a hunting camp somewhere, Canada, wherever, and some outfitters are so hung up on score that they, everything, that's all they think about when a client shoots a deer, they, that mule deer, oh yeah, he, that's a 170 mule deer. You better better shoot him. And the guy gets all excited and kills the buck, gets home. Official Pope and Young scorer comes over and his score is 157. And then all of a sudden, it's the scorer's fault. And uh, it wasn't the outfitter's fault. It's the scorer's fault. And It's and funny how it's always the scorer's fault. <laughs> you know, I, uh, I actually just had a, me and my son just killed a deer together and super special moment and uh it was an incredible time and i thought man i this i actually guessed it at 120 i'm like it's probably 120 and uh, i was like well i'm gonna measure it because boy that'd be awful cool to be able to enter a deer that i shot with my son and i so i measured it and tim knows my measuring skills and don't get me wrong here uh but i measured it tim at 124 and six eighths and that's I was great like, that's great and i was like crap dude two two eighths too short and yep. uh, somebody said, well, don't you think you could have messed up a bit? I said, yeah, but if I messed up, I messed up big. So the, <laughs> I didn't mess up small. I, I don't measure stuff to mess up small. So, but no, I mean, that's, that's the problem with it though. You know, a lot of that comes down to, and you know, Kurt, I've had this conversation with Tim several times. A lot of it's not dudes just trying to stretch the taping and pull as much out of it as they can. A lot of it is literally just a, a misconception. They think that this is the way a deer is measured, and it's not. Um, but that's that's a, still a major problem. You know, you, you talk to some guys, and they're like, yeah, well, you get to do this. And you're like, no, you, you don't get to do that. Like, I remember right. telling Tim, like, well, this is how everybody I've ever known measures a deer. And like, In Arkansas, you said. <laughs> well, they can't read a tape down there. Uh, <laughs> um, but, yeah, and that's just what, what it comes down to. Is of a lot of it's not just somebody saying, Oh, I think I can stretch five inches out of this mug. It's just they literally didn't know and they measured it wrong. And 
And so it's not a, a, hey, idiot, you measured this wrong. It's actually 122, but it's, hey, why don't I show you how to measure this? Like, why don't, why don't you, why don't you, obviously you have some sort of passion to measure. Why don't you become a measure for Pope and Young so you know it's official? You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And estimating, you know, I mean, some officers will say you can't shoot anything under 140 or we're going to charge you a thousand bucks or whatever and i've heard that too and all you're doing is sending your client out into a tree and he's nervous already and he hasn't even seen a deer yet now he's got to try and judge a 140 inch deer on the hoof and um and most of them can't do it oh there was there was absolutely one time i I went hunting and you go to the tree stand with a binder like a, a literal binder because it says, oh, if it's three and a half, it's got to be 140. If it's a nine, it's got to be, you know, at least 135. <laughs> if it's a, if it's got a broken G2, then it can be one, you know, 119. So you literally have a binder. And as a deer comes in, you're counting its points and you're looking out at the binder. Oh, it's, not, it's got a nine. It's got, oh, it's got an extra point on that side. So it's got to be at least one. Uh, it, I left the place. I'm like, I don't even want to hunt here. Like, this is just ridiculous. Yeah. There's no binders yeah, in about, <laughs> about as much skill at that as uh, aging deer on the hoof. I, oh that kind of makes me laugh. I see these guys on TV and they're like, oh, yeah, he's four and a half. Oh, no, that deer, that's, that deer's six and a half. No, he's five and a half. And they're so sure about what they're looking at just based on if, his jaw, if he's got jowls hanging or brisket hanging down or based on what his body looks like. And I think if there was a kid out there where you could age a deer definitively, there'd be a lot of liars out there. I wonder about that too. I see that's, at least I see it more and more. I I say it's trending, but aging deer. And and I've seen some try to explain it, and which I appreciate because I want some education. One thing I do like about your show, Kurt, is if there's something, a topic of controversy or educational opportunity, um, you've at least give it a few minutes to say why and you know the whole chest and the neck and the length and and this and that on, on whitetail of course on whitetail um it's funny how many blacktail out here we see harvested by hunters and they turn a deer tooth in because we're we're asked to we're not required to and how many are shocked at what they come back at um they were like, oh, I would have swore this was going to be a whatever, you know, a five-year-old deer, an eight-year-old deer. And it's often younger or way older than they thought. And it wasn't, it didn't match what their model was. Yeah. Yeah, I had a genius idea one time I was going to get rich. And uh, I was going to build a deer aging kit where you could use the cement manuali method. And it would come with a little saw, and you could saw the tooth in half, and then you pour this liquid onto the tooth, and then you count the rings or whatever. And I thought, man, this is going to be awesome. Every every outfitter, every deer manager, everybody out there is going to want one of these. And and then uh, I kind of ran into a roadblock when I found out that the liquid that you pour on there was a controlled substance. 
some kind of acid or something. I don't know what it is, but I don't know if that's still the case. But that was the end of my getting rich scheme. But <laughs> it would be interesting because there'd be a lot of guys that would be pretty surprised, I think, that think they're these aging experts. You know, now if you got history with the deer, that's different. You know, if you knew him when he was two and a half and you still know him seven years later, then obviously he's nine and a half years old. But to and I will say, him, I will say it's valuable to know the age of your deer, even if you're off a year or two, that, hey, we're only going to kill five-year-old deer. And if you accidentally kill a three-and-a-half-year-old that's big or a seven-and-a-half-year-old that's maybe not as big as you would think you'd be at seven-and-a-half, that's that's great. I, I applaud mm-hmm. the management. Um, it just doesn't seem like it's terribly consistent or they haven't explained it well. It's just like the the whole scoring, you know, referring to the record book system, whether you're talking about G points or circumferences, or you're talking about a score classification like a, a 150 class whitetail or a 300 class bull elk, referring to that, but then not truly honoring and respecting, or it appears that you're not respecting the scoring system because you're not getting anything officially measured. It it's mm-hmm. kind of defeating the purpose. And and if you if you're not going to honor that, why don't you just refer to it as an age and a and a weight rather than a scoring system that you don't even believe in? Yeah. Yeah, it's uh instant gratification back to that again. Bigger number they like better, you know, it's the bigger right. the better. And social media has contributed to that because now the whole existence of mankind is look at me sure. look at me now look what i did look who i am and uh and uh it's getting it's really getting kind of out of hand in my opinion but uh, i guess that's the way the world's going but so then let me ask you this sad. you've been on bow hunter tv 20 years well you're you're a, you're a face you are an icon on that show and we are watching you. What is it about Bow Hunter TV that you try to do or the show tries to do um, that is different than a hey, look at me? Yeah. Um, well, one thing is you will never hear us complain about a broken brow tine or a busted G2 or um something to do with score in fact you probably will never hear us mention score either um of course we're not out there shooting the 240 inch non-typicals or we might mention the score but (laughs) but uh we that's just not our thing um we look for a deer that is a mature deer or and sometimes i end up having to take a deer that uh, maybe wouldn't take if I wasn't hunting for TV just because uh, we're out there trying to show some adventure and and show bow hunting and that kind of thing. And uh, nobody wants to watch a bunch of shows with uh, no animal being taken. But uh, we're always very happy with anything we shoot. And uh, we also show when we screw up or if we fail, if we miss. Um, and that's that's the make a bad hit or whatever you know yeah that's the hunter way it's also the bow hunter's way 
But I do have some shows or episodes of various shows that I've seen out there where I often wonder how long they deliberated with showing a shot that does it benefit bow hunting? Does it benefit hunting? Does it benefit what? Why? Why show that? I mean, is it to get your 13 episodes? Is it to, or is it to just eat the crow and say, hey, I goofed up? I, I, I can appreciate that. Um, yeah. What, what in, in the world of TV and print, let's even include print because you've been in that so long. What is it that you hope other shows and other writers? do maybe as their mission or as um an ethic in in portraying bow hunting and, and showing bow hunting what is something that you've hoped that they do in their film and in their writing that that uh you kind of stand and live by well you know show a little class don't act like a fool or uh you know um a redneck doing stupid stuff you know i i guess uh the general public like even if i'm in an airport or if i'm in the public somewhere and i happen to have my camouflage on going to a restaurant or something if somebody needs help with something open the door anything like that all those kind of things that you do so people can respect you and they say well, what are you doing bowling yeah we're bowling and, and uh um, just try to have a little bit of class and and not do stupid things. And, you know, if you make a bad hit, uh, everybody does that at one time or another. But don't show seven replays of it and uh, blood squirting out all over and that kind of thing. Um, explain what happened. If you know what happened, and own up to it. Um, if you made a bad hit, own up to it. Don't say you smoked them. God, I hate that phrase. But uh, um, with a laser yeah, that, beam, that's just what I, I think is just just show a little class and and uh, like you know, act like you've been there before and you know what you're doing. As an ambassador to bow hunting, and in a way, as a regular member, you're an ambassador to Pope and Young. And although you don't have all of your animals yet measured for the record books, um, if someone were to ask you tomorrow, what's this Pope and Young thing? What what do you tell them? Well, the first thing they need to realize is that the scoring system has endured for many, many years. You can't change it. It is what it is. Same as the Boone and Crockett system. Other scoring systems have tried to come along and have failed. And so, you, you know, you accept it as the method of scoring. And, uh, but you're really honoring the animal, not the hunter. And when you uh, watch a deer for four years and you finally take that animal, most bow hunters, real bow hunters, are going to feel some remorse for that, and uh, sure. and they're going to want to honor that animal. And the only way you can really do that is, you know, put them on the wall and have them scored and and uh, get them in the book. 
it's it's to get the animal listed. It's not to get the hunter's name out there and show you show how many uh, animals you have. And then the other thing is that uh, there's so much more to Pope and Young that uh, the club still has to work on that they do for conservation and uh, different things and just like oversight. You know, it's like having a <clears throat> radar system out there, an anti-missile system where you are there to protect bow hunting. And maybe there's no threat right now. Maybe there's nothing, no missiles headed our way at this minute. But we got somebody watching for it. And it's the Pope and Young Club. And uh, you need to give back in some way, shape, or form. Uh, you think about all those times and days you spent in a tree or sneaking around. And that's how you give back is... Uh, Mentor a young kid or even a friend and uh, join the Pope and Young Club so that that radar system, that anti-missile system is always there waiting, ready to be deployed. I like that. I like that. One of the things that I've said, at least in my workshops to new measures, is support your local hunting organization, bow hunting organization, whether it's county club, archery range, whatever it is, support your state organization, and then support a national organization. And hopefully that includes Pope and Young, um, because we all do different things at different levels. Um, one's more granular and local, and one's more at a national level. And it keeps you involved in it, you know, and I'll just pitch this out there. What a great gift to give somebody for Christmas, a membership into a bow hunting organization. It is a great gift. Maybe they don't stick, but if we get that 10% to do that, that'll help us out. Um, I keep going back to your show and, and <laughs> I was just looking at the site while we're talking and I remember some, some different episodes and it made me think of some different people. Um, I'm sure you've hunted with people in your life that you went, man, <laughs> that was tough. But there's probably some folks that you've had either on as guests or you've hunted with or hunted at a location with them that are really memorable that that you think of often as as great ambassadors to hunting. And I'm just kind of curious as who's your favorite? Who who is one of your favorite hunters? Let's go with hunters. Who's one of your favorite hunters to hunt with? Whether it was on the show or not, but I was thinking more along the show. Well Dwight Shu is my mentor. I knew was, it. I knew it. He's uh reason I am where I am pretty much. I didn't get a chance to hunt with him much because he went to, he'd go one direction and I'd go another. But uh, sure. that guy was Mr. Ethics. Um, I mean, we spent 20 days hunting moose in Alaska and he damn near killed me. <laughs> Trying to keep up to him and uh, he was serious. We never got one drop of rain the whole time. And... Um, it was just brutal. We had fog one morning, and I thought, oh, boy, we're going to get to take a break. No, he was up making breakfast. Time to go hunting. And then uh, the other one would be Larry D. Jones. I, I've hunted with him quite a few times. And uh, 
he's a guy who is 82 now, or he will be this month. And I just hunted Oregon, Roosevelt Elk with him in Oregon this past fall. And he's still, still getting, getting along in those mountains. And he's a guy that is always up, no matter how tough the hunting is, no matter how bad of a mood everybody else gets in. Larry D. Jones is uh, always up and ready to go. Get so, up in the morning and get hiking up that mountain. True icons, true icons. And it's funny that, that so that's yeah, true. that's that's great that it's Larry. I, I knew you spent a lot of time or at least a lot of a video with, with Dwight. And uh, every chance I got out here in Oregon to see him speak or be in an event that he was at just – to hear other people or myself try to pick his brain and and just see his demeanor, um, I often see myself get frustrated a lot. And and of course, I'm not around the guy hunting. I never hunted with him. But to see his demeanor around people, I imagine he doesn't get rattled. He didn't get rattled. Maybe he did. Yeah. No, he. Well, you know, he would. He'd get pretty serious from time to time. And he, his his grandsons grandkids called him. Uh, grumpa but uh <laughs> so so he could get grouchy from time to time but he oh, just had to be ready for it and <laughs> so he's so he's human that's good that's good yeah if you yeah if you if you if tomorrow it was said that you only had one hunt left in you and not because of physical abilities but Hunting was going to end end next week, and you had one hunt that you could go do at no cost. What would it be? Um, I imagine uh, bighorn sheep in Montana. Uh, I haven't hunted sheep. That's one gap in my resume is I've, I've never hunted sheep. And yeah. um, that's sort of the holy grail of sheep hunting to me. It'd be a breaks tag in Montana. To, de to tease Dylan one more time before he asks you a couple more questions. When I ask him that, he keeps saying whitetail. And being from the West, I, I giggle about it because there's got to be other things that you want to hunt. But it's amazing how many people... Uh, do pick something they haven't hunted, and yet how many people pick something that they're so now, intimately familiar with? We got to go back because I don't. If you ask me that question, I don't say whitetails. <laughs> okay, if, no cost you, involved. What would you do? No, no, no. When I say whitetails, the question is posed as if I could only hunt one species sure. for the rest of my life, and I say whitetails just because I can hunt them. You know, A lot I can of kill. Places. When I'm just where I live, I mean, in a three hour drive, I can be in Missouri, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Iowa. So I can hunt all of these different places. You know, if I choose elk, well, then I only get to go maybe once or twice a year, maybe. Um, but white tells I can hunt them, you know, from August Lots. through January. Um, if I could only choose one animal to like one last hunt tomorrow, no money involved, it's a coastal brown bear, 100%. Yeah, you have said that. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, and I've hunted probably 31, 32 species of game counting international. 
And uh, I would still rank uh, whitetail, mature whitetail buck as number one when it comes to intelligence, human avoidance skills, taking a hit, um, ability to disappear. Uh, none of those other animals can hang with a whitetail. Uh, and Frank Nosco will tell you the same thing. Interesting. Well, you're back, Dylan. Yeah. Is you got your speaker working at least? Yeah, sorry, I had some technical difficulties there. Um, which that's why you have a good co-host. He just carried it right on. Didn't need me. Um, <laughs> so no, I, uh, man, it's all. It's just always a pleasure talking with you, Kurt. And uh, you know, I just I, I love to hear from guys um, who not only have been in the industry for a long time and seen, you know, seen the 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 changing of times, but also who have been with Pope and Young for a long time and have seen, you know, the history of Pope and Young, where we started, where we're going. Um, so it's always, it's always nice to be able to chat with you. And so I appreciate you coming on today, man. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm, I appreciate you asking me. I'm always ready to help uh, Pope and Young club, however I can. I also just appreciate the answer of whitetails being the toughest because some of these guys, you know, they give us a hard time. They're like, all you got to do is sit in a tree and wait for them to walk by. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, you come down here and do it then. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But it always, it also always baffles me. You know, you hear guys and I'm not going to name any names, um, but you hear guys who say like, you know, they've hunted all over. They've hunted, you know, they've killed giants of all these different species. And they go, yeah, I've always just wanted to hunt whitetails though. And I'm like, what do you mean? Like, that's what you've never hunted whitetails and they're like, no man, they're not, they don't, they're not where I live. And I'm like, what? It, that's just crazy to me. Like I, I can't ever wrap my head around that. Yeah. 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 Danny Ferris, he's one of our guys and that's, he lives in Colorado and uh, you'd think he'd be hooked on mule deer, but he likes whitetails better. Wow. Wow. That's crazy. Well, Kurt, thank you so final, much for coming on. Final it's question, always, Bill. Do what? Do I have a final question, or did you did you oh, get I, rid of that? No, I forgot that again. That's why I have you start that over. <laughs> so, Kurt, if you could, uh, if you could only, not if you could only. That's Tim's question. What's one non-traditional hunting item? It can't be your bow or a, a knife, but what's one non-traditional hunting item that you always take hunting with you? Non-traditional hunting knife. Hmm. Well, I tell you, one of the greatest inventions that uh, for hunting in the uh, last twenty-five years is uh, LED headlamp. <laughs> yeah, it might seem kind of odd, but uh, you get caught in the dark in the mountains somewhere and you're going to wish you got one of them and some batteries and maybe an extra extra headlamp, but I don't go anywhere without a headlamp. So but, do you uh, take anything like, uh, you know, maybe that's sentimental or anything to you? I have a leather arm guard that I took three elk ivories and made the, um, uh, for where the elastic strap goes around and then it goes around the elk ivories. And uh, I've taken that with me on a lot of hunts. So that's kind of sentimental. But awesome. um, 
I don't get too attached to bows or anything because I'm only shooting them for a year or so. Then I got the next one coming in. So yeah. it's, uh, I don't get too attached like you used to be in the old days when I had the old Cougar Magnum. I'd uh, had that 85-pound bow for years. I mean, I had a name for it and everything else. And, <laughs> and uh, nowadays, uh, nowadays I don't have that. But, yeah. Um, it's a different different game. What is the um what is what's that one bow to you that's always stuck out? Like do you have that and maybe it is the Cougar Magnum, but have you ever had that bow for whatever reason was just like you know, that's that's your special bow? My first bow was a Jennings T Star and I traded that off for the Cougar Magnum. And that was back in the days where it was sparkle green. There was no camouflage bows. So we had, uh, we'd take and hang the bow from the clothesline and get some flat paint, uh, camo paint, different colors. And there was some wild marijuana growing out in the shelter belts in North Dakota. And we'd put the leaves up against the bow and make this nice camouflage pattern on there. That was super dull way better camo than any of the bows nowadays and uh and uh that bow just kind of sticks with me for for years now um you know our show is sponsored by hoyt so i'm a hoyt guy now yeah you may have to explain to dylan what a clothesline is and are you saying you had a cannabis camo pattern on your bow yeah (laughs) yeah that is too cool man i suppose you could say it was Tomato oh my leaves, God! Tomato <laughs> leaves. Yeah, spray that down, and you put put a base down, and then you'd put a little black, and then a little brown, and man, that thing was super camouflage. Uh, all this smack talking you do, Tim, about being from Arkansas, and you think we had <laughs> washers and dryers when I was a kid? <laughs> I, assume, I assumed you didn't know what a clothesline was. <laughs> I still, I still faithfully use a clothesline for hunting season because I want my clothes to air dry out in the, in the breeze. Yeah, I haven't used a clothesline in twenty years. Easy, maybe thirty. <laughs> well, Kurt, it has been a pleasure, man. We appreciate it greatly. Thank you for everything you do for archery, for hunting, and for Pope and Young, uh, guys. Thank you for listening. Y'all have a fantastic week. Thanks for having me.